the Bottom Line Hoff Podcast. I am your host, Richard Huffman, expert in all things Bader Meinhof. We talk about left-wing German terrorism of the 1970s, the Bader Meinhof group, student radicalism, and other stuff like that. I, I say it's the only podcast that is devoted to, yet unaffiliated with, the Bader Meinhof gang. Um, and today I have a really fantastic, interesting interview with a man who was um, fairly severely injured by a Bader-Meinhof bomb and was also the last person to actually speak to the very first American victim of uh, the Bader-Meinhof gang that was killed by them. Um, and we'll get to that in just a minute, but it is fascinating. A um, couple bits of um, site news. I, I mentioned in a previous podcast that I'm slowly rebuilding my website in in Drupal, which is a kind of a content management system, a database-driven website. Um, I've actually, my website went online like around 1997. So it's, it's been going on for like 13 years, which is unbelievable. Um, I created it way back when, when the first time I ever went online looking for Bader Meinhof information, there was literally nothing up there. There was like maybe a hundred mentions on the entire internet of Andreas Bader, and half of them were just wrong. They were just crazy bits of wrong information. So that's why I started putting my site together. And over the years, it's sort of been built up, and I've done a complete revision twice, I think. Um, I'm also a graphic designer, web designer by trade, so I just kind of redid it almost as an exercise in learning some of my craft. And... Um, and one of the downsides of it is there's stuff there that I wrote literally 13, 12 or 13 years ago that I've now since come to realize is, is inaccurate information. Um, case in point, this bombing we're going to talk about today, I've, I, I've had a bit of information up there about the time this bomb went off and how this particular man was killed that I've known to be wrong for a while, yet I haven't bothered to change it because because the way I developed my site the last time I redid it, it looks beautiful, but it's actually somewhat hard to get in there and just change information easily. So to a certain extent, I've just ignored it. So the beauty of this new uh, this new website will be that it's very easy to change all this information. And, and because almost every bit of information um, uh, is contained in discrete um, kind of pages that that create like bigger pages. So, for instance, my timeline um, will have maybe like for 1972, it might have like 80 different individual events on there that it's easy to change what's going on in the, those events. And what'll be cool for people that check my website out is as I come up with new things that I hadn't put in the timeline, it'll be easier to add them to them. But it's also tied into things like Google Maps. So if I'm talking about the June 2nd riot, you can read there and then you can just click right there and, and see a Google map like to the square foot exactly where the June 2nd, 1967 riot happened, a block and a half away where Ben Onazorg tragically lost his life, to later on in the evening when Gudrun Enslin stumbles over the SDS office onto Kudam and screams that um, this is the Nazi or the, the Auschwitz generation. We must answer violence with violence, you know, and you, you can see where all that stuff happened. It'd be really cool. 
Um, it'll also be able, it, it's also going to be easy for me to allow others, if somebody else is interested in the subject or knows more about something than I do about it or wants to edit it or whatever, it's easy to, to, to give people that kind of control themselves. It doesn't have to be tied to me. Um, also, there'll be a forum on there. So if people want to talk um, and contribute and whatever, it'd be really easy. So I'm super excited. Right now, I'm just in that mode of designing it and playing with it and then transferring over all the data, which is really hard. It's going to take me a good 80, 100 hours to do all this probably, but it'll be exciting. Um, other information. Oh, the, the two Andrews from New York, if you're listening, I emailed you back. You haven't gotten back to me. So feel free to get back to me when you get a chance or check your junk pile. So anyway, what we're going to talk to or who we're talking to today is a man named Peter Glier. He was stationed in Frankfurt, Germany in, in 1970 and, um, or 72, I'm sorry. And in May of 72, well, prior to May, all through the, from like 1970, 71, 72, the Bader Meinhof gang was sort of, um, they, they were the, uh, they, they were the hope and inspiration for a lot of leftist radicals because they were the people that were ostensibly, living out this revolution that everybody talked about wanting and wanting to support. And these people are actually doing it. Um, and it was kind of easy to support them. There had been a police officer killed, which was awful. There had been a gang member that had been killed, but in a sense it was the stakes weren't that big. It was, they were robbing banks. They were on the run. They were in hiding and it was somewhat easy to support them. Um, but to a certain extent, they were also getting a certain amount of internal flack amongst the leftist community. At what point are you guys going to stop robbing banks and start bringing about the revolution? And this certainly was going on in their own minds and weighing heavily on them. Um, and throughout 1972, they spent a lot of time putting together bomb-making materials. Um, it's my understanding they actually learned their recipe from the famous anarchist cookbook that was um, put together, I think, in the late 60s in America and had recipes for all kinds of things, including bombs. And um, they got a bunch of the materials. A lot of it was fertilizer-based bombs and other types of bombs. And they would take coffee grinders and grind up these materials, including burning one out. And all the way up until May of 72, they were just basically putting together hundreds and hundreds of pounds of explosives. Um, a lot of them in a safe house in Frankfurt. And, uh, and so early in May, they had actually created many, many bombs, but they hadn't really thought, when are we going to use these? What's going to happen? And it's my understanding that the bomb, the first one, the one that we're going to talk about today was almost done ser serendipitously. Um, the Americans had announced that they had started to mine uh, North Vietnamese harbors, essentially creating a humanitarian aid blockade um, from uh, allow you know stopping even food and other stuff from reaching North Vietnam, and this really ticked off you know a lot of people, but especially the people in the Bader Meinhof group, and they, it's my understanding, went on a whim, uh, almost on a whim, and just drove over to the American Army base and decided we're going to plant some bombs here. And, um, there was, I believe two bombs planted, um, that went off almost simultaneously in the main Ige Farben building, which was this giant building where, um, where the U S army was housed. Um, in a previous interview, I taught, uh, like podcasts, like four podcasts ago, I interviewed Larry 
David Clark, who was um, the head of the MP unit that was on duty there. And he encountered Gudrun Enslin. He, he talked to her just before the bomb went off. And um, this bomb caused a lot of damage, few injuries. Um, but literally just a few seconds later, a little bit later, maybe a minute later, another much bigger bomb went off. Um, and this was out in front of the officer's club. And that's the one we're talking about today. Now, this bomb killed um, Lieutenant Colonel Paul Bloomquist. And it's important to know who he was. Um, he was a former um, U.S. Army helicopter pilot. And he was a medevac pilot in Vietnam. And he was stationed in Vietnam way before people even knew we were fighting a war in Vietnam. We're talking like, I think, 62 and 63 and 64. And he was an incredibly brave man. He was a guy that um, would go in and get people out of hot zones where people had, where, where people had just been fighting and they, and they were severely injured. And um, he had earned the um, Bronze Star, which is very hard citation to earn. He had earned the Silver Star which is a much higher citation and a much harder citation to earn. He had earned the Distinguished Flying Cross. Um, he had rescued and saved hundreds of people um, going in um, again and again under fire. Um, just really kind of an amazing guy as a military war kind of person. Um, by 19, early 70s, he was, um, I believe, serving as a kind of head of like a, a drug council, drug abuse prevention program. Um, and he was slated to head back to the U.S. within like a month or something. Um, but he was working at, in Frankfurt heading up this program there. And uh, anyway, so um, Mr. Glyer, who we're going to talk about here, as you'll hear on the interview, was pretty much the last person to speak to uh, Bloomquist alive. Bloomquist was um, effectively the very first American victim in the Bader-Meinhof gang's war against America and their toadies in, um, in, in Germany as they saw them. So anyway, I hope you enjoy this interview and, uh, next podcast, I think it'll be the next one. I'm speaking to a author who's got a, a terrific book about 1968 and how the memory of Auschwitz and the Holocaust, um, influenced and, and, uh, and, um, drove a lot of these people in the 1968 generation. So that'll be interesting too. That will hopefully be coming up the next one of the next two podcasts. Anyway, I hope you enjoy this interview and we will talk to you later. Okay. So, okay. First off, thank you so much for allowing me to talk to you. And I, I just wanted to give you a brief bit of background on me. So you know where I'm coming from. Um, okay. I have sort of become this, um, expert in left-wing German terrorism in the 1970s. It stemmed from the fact that my father was, um, he was EOD in the army and he was stationed in Berlin from 70 to 72, which was an auspicious time to be an EOD in Berlin um, right. because there was a lot of urban guerrilla bombs that were being left there by a group called the June 2nd movement. And he diffused, he estimates about seven of them, including one that was um, at a place where my mom was having um, brunch and also another one that was at Tempelhof Airfield where my dad figures they were directly targeting him and his crew. So this personal history sort of prompted me to look into this closer. And um, so I've been looking at it and researching it for the past decade or so, and I'm working on a book about it. And right now, a lot of what I'm working on is their um, 
the campaigns um, of the Bader Meinhof group um, in May of 1970, specifically the the V Corps uh, headquarters bombing and the Heidelberg bombing, and that's where I found your name. It was listed in the um, Stars and Stripes. You were uh, you were mentioned in the Stars and Stripes interview, and that's what I was hoping to talk to you about today. If that's great, that's just fine. Okay, so um, tell me about what what was your what were you doing in um, Frankfurt in uh, 1972? What was your role in the military? Okay, um, I was an in, a member of the, the Corps of Engineers as an officer. Mm-hmm. I worked in the uh, Engineer Command building. Sure. Which is, you had the Farben building, you had the Officers Club, the Hillipad, and then you had the Corps of Engineers building behind that. Sure. And then, then behind that's the chapel and uh, housing and that sort of thing, uh, going uh, away from the uh, Farben building. I forget which direction that they, I think that's north, but I'm... Mm-hmm. Could be wrong. Um, I was a assigned to the engineer command in the spring of 1971. Uh, I think I arrived there in April, and first as a second lieutenant. I think it was a, not sure when I was first lieutenant. Uh, probably immaterial. Um, as a project officer working for the Corps of Engineers in the headquarters. Sure. Um, I was taking uh, advantage of a GI Bill and was getting a master's degree through the University of Southern California, which had an overseas program, uh, which was being, classes were taught in the Farben building. Sure. So on that particular night, um, I got home from work, and my BOQ was very close to the uh, engineer headquarters, and uh, dressed in civilian clothes, went to the officers' club, had dinner, uh, and then was on my way uh, to class. And I believe class started at 7, but I could be wrong about that. Mm-hmm. Um, went to the cashier, uh, paid my bill, walked out through the double entry of the building, um, which uh, figures into some of my tale. Uh, it is a portico. Uh, the front of the the front of the building looked like the letter C. Um, and you mean that look, looking down from above? Yes. Okay. Yes, of the officers club. Yeah. Um, and, uh, well, I guess almost like a letter E because the portico comes out like the middle uh, finger of the letter E. Sure. Uh, it's also shorter than the, than the, the uh, two wings. Um, I came, that that is uh, a wire-reinforced, glass uh, with a metal covering over it and then after you proceed out 
the second set of doors. There was a continued metal covering because there's a place where cars could pull through in the rain mm-hmm. so people get out to go into the club. And then you proceed from there across the road and then down some stairs to the reflecting pond. I was coming out of that second set of doors, was getting to the island of the that uh, um, driveway, and I heard a rumble, which ends up being the two bombs smaller, I am given to understand, that had been set off in the front of the Farman building. And I saw two German uh, civilian workers in their uh, garb run out the back side of the building and sort of look up at it. Uh, there was a person in military uniform who had just gotten out of his car uh, that was parked to my right from the direction I was going at about 2 o'clock. Mm-hmm. Um, he, <clears throat> I, I sort of commented to him, gee, it looks like, um, I don't know what I said, it looks like there's some trouble, it looks like something's happening, or because it was odd, it was clear sky, why would we have thunder? Um and we certainly weren't at war in Germany. We Obviously, in Vietnam, we were. Um, and I began to move quicker at that point, moving to go across the road to then go down the steps. At that point in time, uh, the explosion happens. There's no sound because I'm too close to it. Hmm. Um, the bomb was placed against the wall against the right hand wall at the building of uh, the corner of that reinforced wire glass and the building at a pillar uh, I'm given to understand it was a pipe bomb mm-hmm. um they they made their they made their bombs out of these kind of like a gigantic pipe bomb. They were about maybe um, eight inches in diameter and maybe about ten inches long, with these kind of giant nuts formed at the top. Okay, um, obviously I didn't see it because I'm going out looking differently and it's behind me. Sure. Um, as I say, there was no sound, but as things then go into very slow motion because at least my experience you get into something like that your mind is clicking in very quickly taking in things and so I can I can remember uh, being sort of knocked forward something hit me in the back um, the right side um I presume it was a chunk of that reinforced wire glass as opposed to steel from the uh, pipe. Mm-hmm. Um, the individual, and, and, well, I'll continue mine, 
I can see my glasses sort of coming off in very slow motion. I believe I was knocked to my... I had to knock down, I'm not sure, down to my knees, but I studied myself, picked up my glasses, ran down the steps, turned to the left, uh, because at, at that point there's a, a raised area above the reflecting palm pond, and you have to go left or right, and I went left. There was a table there, you know, a, a typical fold-out three-by-six table, uh, and I, I began to crawl under it, and then decided that was too difficult. My back was hurting, and I just lay down my back looking up. Um, I did not personally see the individual who had been also walking out from his car going to go. My impression was he was going to be going down the steps also. Evidently, he got the steel, whereas I got a chunk of glass. I was wearing a very heavy corduroy coat and a Pendleton shirt, both of which I think helped uh, minimize my injuries um, the the next thing I knew people came to me uh, and they um, they got me first they were with me I don't think I ever lost consciousness but I never saw the Farman building or the club. I have seen, I had friends from the command who took pictures of it. I have copies of those, uh, of the damage of the club. Um, and, but I was, I was put on a stretcher, put in an ambulance, taken to 97th General, um, and was processed through there. That is, <clears throat> They took uh, x-rays, um, it, I had uh, broken some vertebrae in my back on, on, the, on the right-hand side, uh, I think the ninth and 10th rib or something like that, um, was in the hospital, and then uh, several days later, they said, oh, you have a collapsed lung. <laughs> Evidently, the the... the ribs when they were were hit and bent in slightly slit the lung uh, so I was slowly putting air in the sac or in the in the space between uh, the lung and, the, and the, the ribs and so then they they had to they did stuff to, to fix that they kept me in the hospital because I was a bachelor um, mm. There's a photograph in Army Times of me in bed. Uh, my family found out about it through the news as opposed to through Red Cross. I uh, don't know why that was the case, but one of my brothers saw it on television, and uh, I got a, got a call from the States. Um, eventually, a, some, friends, some married friends of mine uh, took me in, and I was able to stay at their house till I was strong enough to go back to work. How how long of a time period was that? I I'm thinking it's about a month. Uh, 
maybe two weeks in the hospital, two weeks with them. It's real fuzzy at this point. Wow, because that the, uh, just about the time you were recovered was when they captured Botter and uh, Raspa right just a half a mile away, right there in Frankfurt. Did you were you aware of the capture? Did you follow any of that coverage as you were in the um, hospital? It, to the degree it, you know, obviously I didn't read German newspapers or listen to there. I, if if someone told me, I didn't have AFN on in the room. But if I had uh, Stars and Stripes and it talked about it, or people came in and talked about it, uh, I believe I was in the hospital when the Heidelberg bombing took place, which was about a week later, if I recall, after mine. Yeah, about 10 days later. Yeah, so I was in the hospital at that point. Um, so that, that ties in with my memory of being there at least two weeks. Were you, were you aware of the Bader-Meinhof gang prior to this um, at all? Not really, not really. It was not something that had um, impacted American lives. It, it, there were, you know, Frankfurt at that time was had demonstrations uh, generally faithfully on a Saturday downtown periodically, and the, the police would get there. Um, water cannon vehicles and cordons and 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 sort of try to control the crowds. And th- those were the kind of things there were protests against our involvement in Vietnam. I mean that that was that was just in in the ether of where we were. That I was aware that about Meinhof particularly, I don't believe so. Obviously, I was after. Um, I went. Um, that's in 72. 72. Um, after I was married, uh, and I married an uh, English woman, mm-hmm. uh, whom um, came to work for the American Army in Frankfurt as a uh, third country national, uh, English speaking, um, she recalled having heard about the bombings uh, against the American forces, and one of her friends commented, you want to go to Germany? Why, why, why do you want to do that? And she says, oh, no problem. And then, you know, she never realized that, you know, ultimately she married someone who was involved in that. Hmm. Um, when um, our youngest son or oldest son, I guess you'd say, um, was born in June of 75, and not long after he was born, uh, very young with colic and so forth, uh, we flew north to Hamburg, I think, and uh, testified at a trial um, where they asked me about various parts i was I was more the kind of witness of you know just to establish the fact that yes, there was a bombing, and yes there was uh, it, was i was I hurt and all those sorts of things. Uh, I remember going to that uh, special courthouse outside the Stuttgart uh, 
jail. Stomheim prison. Yeah, Stomheim. And going, uh, seeing it and looking at uh, the construction of it, uh, I was, my wife attended me. Uh, she was brought in through the front door, went through the, the search. You know, the, they had bulletproof glass. You came in through the, uh, the wire. Uh, she had to, she could not bring even a book into the courtroom uh, for fear that there was something inside of it that could be used. Uh, I was brought around the backside. Uh, didn't go through any of that uh, and then testified there uh, in that trial I remember uh, discussing just like I am with you what was what happened and so forth and uh, the, one of the questions they asked me that I remember was um, they asked me about the other person uh, who ended up being, I believe, a lieutenant colonel chaplain who had been in Vietnam and it's back. Lieutenant, lieutenant Colonel Paul Bloomquist, he was actually a, a medevac pilot, an actual hero. He had the Silver Star, Bronze Star, Distinguished Flying Cross, and I, I believe what he was doing in, in Frankfurt was he was the head of like a drug control program, an advisor and counselor, so he was working with uh, the you know, the drug problem amongst, I think, uh, military people. Okay. Um, but in any case, they said, well, describe him. And I said, I, I believe he was in uniform. Uh, was he carrying anything? I said, yes, I, I believe a briefcase. And then they said, what color? And so I was going, oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> is it black or is it brown? And I said, da, 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 most of them are brown. Okay, brown. Uh, and it, at that, they lifted the case up, and it, you know, had clear damage to it, and the, the audience kind of was surprised. Um, did you get the color right? Yeah, <laughs> I did. Um, well, can, can I ask you, were the defendants in the courtroom was Botter and Enslin? Okay, they, they were not. They did uh, at that point. They had stopped attending was what I recall um, and so they were not in the, the courtroom um, and and you know so anyway I gave my deposition and then then departed I think there was one more trial that I was flown back from the United States I departed Germany in I believe August of 70 and in either the fall of 76 or the spring of 77 German government flew me back from where I was stationed at Fort Belvoir going to school um, to attend a trial in hmm, not Stuttgart, not Hamburg. It was. Uh, I'll look on my timeline here and see yeah. if I have it listed as um, well. It, it, in any case, I had been picked up by at Frankfurt Airport, um, and it's the place. These not V spot. They could have been V spot, and it could have been 
um, uh, on the on the west side of the Rhine. Uh-huh. Um, anyway, uh, and the 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 chap who picked me up uh, had been in World War Two, and he says, "Well, in my day, we would have." said to these people uh, here go run and then he makes a, a, a sign like carrying a, a machine pistol huh. uh, we would have taken care of these people um, and I, I, I don't remember much about that trial it was it was less um, less memorable at that point than, than the other two um, and then I flew flew back home, and then that's the last involvement. Um, somewhere in that time frame, uh, th- there was a book published, Children, Hitler's... Hitler's Children by Gillian Becker. Yeah, and so I, someone gave me that book, and I had a chance to read through and get a little bit more background on... Buttermeinhof and and so forth. Um, I was certainly more aware of the RAF uh, after my uh, incident with them uh, as sort of successors to Buttermeinhof, the the kneecapping of of industrialists in Rome and and all the other uh, foolishness that they were doing in Europe at that time uh, so you know that was more and more I was aware of those kind of things uh, I looked at your timeline online and may have been aware of that that uh, Lorenz uh, but those were those are not items that were prior to your uh, email and my going to look at it that, that I had you know that sort of oh yeah I sort of remember some of those things but I, I digress from, from your question did, did you put a lot of um, like after this incident happened and and did you spend a lot of time thinking about this or did it just sort of go into the back of your mind or, or oh, it, it was it was always there um, for instance when I testified at Specifically, the Stuttgart, it could have been the Hamburg trial. Um, by then, friends, uh, one of uh, a captain whom I was very, it actually was one of the people that I end, the, the, the family that I ended up staying with, um, was named the project manager for putting the, the uh, officers' club back together. And so he brought me some pictures when I was in the hospital or maybe when I was staying with them. And I looked at the the hole in the ground um, and uh, sort of did some back calculations on uh, being an engineer officer of the, you know, so much, so many pounds of, the equivalent of TNT gives a, a hole of this size and so forth, and I somehow I uh, 
I, I think I calculated uh, something like 25 pounds of TNT equivalent that were stuffed in that uh, pipe bomb. And, uh, but that was conjecture on my part because, but I just, you know. That's you almost know. exactly the size of the bombs, at least the, the, the identical bombs that they used that were found as duds. Um, about two weeks later, they tried to blow up uh, a press building up in uh, Hamburg, and three of the bombs didn't go off. And the way you're describing, they were basically about, they look like large thermos containers, and they basically had about 25, 20 to 25 pounds of explosives in them. Mm. So that was <laughs> you. You were trained well. It sounds like by the Army Corps. So you know you were describing the security measures with of your wife going through there and them looking through her books and stuff. And that that's actually an interesting point because you may or may not be aware that ultimately, when Bader and Enslin and and uh, and Raspa were found dead in prison it turns out that they had two and later there was even a third gun that had been found smuggled into to this prison which had been described as the most secure prison block in the world mm -hmm. and how did they do it it was because lawyers were hollowing out papers and smuggling them in through that so while they may have been checking you they clearly were doing a lousy job at um <laughs> checking the lawyers i mean it's yeah. really crazy there's in fact even to this day um a very large and sizable contingent of people believe that there's no possible way they committed suicide in prison. And, and you can understand why when you think that sure. the German government spent five years saying this is the most secure thing in the world. Oh, and by the way, they've still managed to smuggle in three, two or three guns. So I can understand that even though the facts seem to clearly line up to the fact that that's in fact what they did do. So, yeah. um, was there any lingering physical effects from your injuries in this bombing? Uh, not really. I mean, I, I still, you know, the scars are there and all that sort of stuff, but and, and very light, like a the 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 heavy uh, corduroy jacket, uh, which I kept for a number of years, had uh, cuts in it. Uh, there was a, just a small cut in the Pendleton shirt. Um, so that absorbed most of whatever the glass was, uh, and then uh, you know the thump on the back was what, uh, and, and you know that's the point where it hit me was the point where the the ribs are really curved, so it, it pushed it in and it came back out. So it, it you know it felt like a bad football tackle, hmm. um, but uh, yeah. How far away do you figure you were from the explosion? Uh, 30 feet. Oh, my God. And um, did you know other people that had been injured personally? Oops. No. No. The, the only one I was aware of was the uh, lieutenant colonel who was that I described. Uh, there were a number of miracle stories. Um, from what I heard, the lady who was in the cash room that I had just paid my uh, bill for food for, uh, evidently, I don't know whether someone else came up to the window at that point, but she had dropped something on the floor, had ducked down to pick it up, and the explosion happened. 
So she was in a quasi-protected position. So she wasn't, uh, I don't believe, hurt or not hurt badly. Um, The insides were obviously torn up, but it was... uh, it was a sparsely attended evening in the club. The, the main uh, area uh, described as a rectangle and the, you know, the letter E. Uh, I don't recall seeing anybody else in there. Uh, in the dining room, there was just uh, not that many people, some staff um, actually in the dining room itself. Uh, at that point, um, and I obviously don't know anywhere else in the club, but it, you know, it did exterior damage, and it did, you know, the force of that uh, surely uh, changed the the face of it. Um, some of it superficially, and some of it structurally. Did you um, did your experiences uh, color or um, make you? think differently when you hear or hear about specific acts of terrorism like September 11th and, and Oklahoma City? I mean, what, what's what I imagine you have a perspective that very few people in this world would have when you hear about something like that going on. What what goes through your mind, say, when you heard about Oklahoma City or September 11? Um, I guess just a, a love, like you say, a level of understanding of what it's like to be on the receiving end, um, more subconscious than taking that chapter out of my life and and um, re-examining it. Uh, it's more experiential. Hmm. You know, there's a there's a, a huge a, a lot of people in Germany, obviously. Um, Germany uh, took the challenge of the Red Army faction very seriously. Um, but there's, especially in recent years, there's a subculture of people that look back on it almost with nostalgia and uh, have seem to have very little appreciation of the very real devastation that wrought on individual lives. Um, have you heard about this or what, 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 what's your thoughts about people that kind of look back in a weird way almost fondly of this era and these people? Well, I, I, I would equate that to our skinheads, um, to your any counterculture, um, ultra-nationalist is what they tend to be. Um, gee, it must have been better than, or, you know, no feel for, you know. My understanding was, Bader-Meinhof, anarchists, uh, they they chose the date as the anniversary of the bombing of Haiphong Harbor. Uh, they felt that the whole of the German nation would rise up and do away with government, or uh, and, and nothing of that happened. Um, I was told by various people that they would be driving down uh, or walking someplace and there would be these um, a lot of uh, repair vehicles appeared all over the place uh, German police in disguise um, that they would be traveling 
from Frankfurt to uh, Augsburg or some of the other places, and all the laybys had um, a presence in them. Uh, it, it was very clear, uh, and in some cases, machine gun armed police. Uh, plainly seen or sometimes not so plainly seen uh, is there was a very heavy hand of um, that the German government was cracking down um, I, I'm a somewhat of a historian um, interested in World War II and uh, understanding sort of the German psyche from that point of view and to me, it's 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 not that far underneath the the veneer of today that you you see a different. I mean, you, the chap who picked me up for that final trial and his comment. Um, the, you know, at that point, it's 1970. It's not that long since the end of World War II. Um, you know the the in reading your, your website about uh, how they pushed through some um, laws that we would never see here um, in terms of who could be admitted to trial or who could be denied and uh, really um, uh, our, our uh, rights under the Constitution are, are uh, not as uh, well guarded there, mm-hmm. uh, probably fortunate in a way because they could, uh, the, the way they were able to apprehend. Um, I do recall I was in in hospital and in in the, the the period thereafter that you know that would be reported that X Y or Z had been captured or or there had been a shootout and so forth. So those would periodically. Uh, come come to the fore, um, uh, but it was just sort of those things were happening. Um, I re- I do remember my wife. Uh, she came to Germany. That's seventy two. In the fall, seventy two, maybe spring of seventy three. And there was a point where um, she was, or a girlfriend was riding a bicycle, and there must have been some more activity, and went by a park and happened to look to to her right up this sort of path, and there was uh, some German police with a machine gun set up. Uh, you know it that's just those are the kind of in that 73 I don't believe 74 but more 73 it could have been in the 74 time frame it's it's difficult for me to 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 put times with with that but it was she told me so it was after she arrived and we would be talking about it um yeah, my, th- my, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Another thing about the Stuttgart um, uh, lo- 
location, not location, but the precautions they took uh, around the perimeter, just inside of the um, the wire that that encased it. Um, there were sheets of plywood, four by eight, laid sideways and attached to the uh, to the wire and where the guards could walk perimeter, but that allowed them, if they had been fired on, to duck down, presumably into some foot trenches or, or other uh, precautions that then the attackers would not be able to see them. Hmm. Uh, I, when I saw the way that the, the wire tented the building. It looked very much like they were taking huge precautions against RPGs and against someone flying a helicopter in to airlift someone out. Uh, I mean, it was just, it was encased. There was, they were very cautious about uh, first people's lives and secondly, uh, the security within that uh, and, and knowing how the Red Army faction operated, this was absolutely, unequivocally the right thing to do, because the organization, people forget, prior to, you know, this was this proto-revolutionary group, and then all of the events in May happened, and the minute um, in June, when the leadership was captured... The Red Army faction essentially morphed into a group that was entirely focused on getting its leaders out of prison. It wasn't about, you know, going off and and blowing up bombs and leading the revolution. It was about getting their leaders out. And um, so those precautions and building that that courthouse with, at such a huge expense in Stuttgart was almost certainly the right thing to do because if there was... For instance, if they had decided, well, we're going to hold it in the main courthouse in the city of Stuttgart, and every day we have to put these prisoners in a van and drive them through town, I mean, the, the amount of security they would have had to provide, and even then it probably still would have been um, a real challenge. It just was almost certainly the right thing to do, even though they made a lot of mistakes. You know, my, my take on, you were talking about the... Um, sort of what it was like to be in Germany at the time. And, and and I've always thought, boy, how could they possibly have thought the German people were going to rise up in support of what they were doing? Yet, when you read the stuff, you realize that's exactly what they thought and assumed. It, it really is kind of remarkable, but that's where they were coming from. And, um, and what they... And, and the irony is, is I think that they actually had a lot of point about the German government. They were saying the German government had this hidden fascist underbelly. And the fact is, is the German government, German population was full of former Nazis. It, I always find it funny when you hear about, um, you know, these quote tea partiers talking about Obama as a Nazi and all this others. And I, and I, and I kind of compare it to these left wingers in Germany at the time talking about these Nazis. And they were talking about real honest to God Nazis. But the thing that they didn't realize was, but, this wasn't the Nazi era. Germany was a pretty progressive state at that point. And if the German state was attacked, the people were not 
interested in supporting that. They were interested in crushing those attacks. So after it's over, you know, after your attack, they released a um, statement. It was either your attack or the Heidelberg attack, and it said um, the German people are not going to support any hunt for the bombers because they hate their government and and hate them for supporting the American people. And it it reads now as the most deluded thing possible because it's pretty clear that's exactly opposite of where the people were coming from. They very much wanted this these this crime wave to end. So, you know, you look back at and you, and you it's it's hard to understand how they could get it so fundamentally wrong. How they could not recognize nobody is interested in having people being murdered in their streets it it just seems like such a crazy crazy time and i've been looking at it for 10 years and i still haven't quite been able to understand that mindset yeah they um you know my observation is that groups like that get into this mindset and um they 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 end up believing what they believe but believe in it it just kind of goes it wraps itself so tightly that you know they're they're not talking with Joe Public. They're talking with their cronies and and who they they isolate themselves with and um, get these intellectual discussions and they very quickly um, believe that everybody else believes what they believe. Yeah, and and so that's sort of the um, fortunately, the uh, that little fringe, and it is a very small fringe, but it can be very uh, violent yeah. if if they want to. I mean, you get the 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 uh, Olympics, and that was the first time the public was faced with um, a group the Palestinians, who didn't care about their own lives. Yeah, absolutely. Everybody else, all normal reactions are, I don't want to get hurt, so I won't go that far, but they didn't care. Yeah, absolutely. They believed so heavily in their cause that if they were going to die for the cause, oh, no problem. Yeah. And now you get you get the, the nth degree with Al-Qaeda and wrapping it in religion and you're going to get 27 virgins and and whatever else because you've etc but uh we, we've just gone progressively a little bit further in in how we dress that kind of uh, those kind of groups those kind of tactics and they've just gotten uh more violent more uh, getting more people involved in, in, in those sorts of things. But back in the in 72, it was still in, an, in its infancy, if you will. Yeah. Um, they, they were they were kind of teaching future generations on how to be a fanatic. Yeah, yeah. You know, they RAF ran off and joined... Uh, with the Palestinians and help they taught each other things and then uh, you know got mutual support and you know there were various interactions uh, Rome Airport and, and and all those other sorts of things 
uh, and uh, all the stuff that was going on in Italy um, also. Yeah. So is there anything else about your experiences in um, Frankfurt that I haven't asked that, 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 I might, that you think I might find compelling or, or interesting? Mm. The fabric of American Americans in Germany as the um, under NATO. Um, you know, there was the the Lion troops, and eventually I went out and became part of Third Armor Division with the Engineer Battalion out there. Um, but you had you ha- so you have the 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 troop unit kind of people. I was at that point in a non-troop unit kind of organization. Engineers uh, responsible for the construction uh, of uh, various facilities for the U.S. forces, and that that's what I was sort of involved with or the, the repair and maintenance of those facilities throughout Germany. Um, but the, the fabric of that was, you know, the war is right, wrong, or indifferent. It's in Vietnam. It's been going on for a while. Uh, and, you know, Johnson, we've had the, the rights in the United States. We've had uh, all that sort of going on, uh, you have the, the mostly students, I think, and that's, that's out of which I think that Bader-Meinhof grows um, with the uh, various uh, movements and in, in intellectually, you know, we're against this and, and so forth, and you have the demonstrations and um, I was never inconvenienced by the demonstrations, but you were aware that you didn't want to go downtown sometimes because, um, you know, that's where the demonstration was going to be. Why go down there and and be part of it? So we just stayed away. Sure. Um, So you were generally aware at at a subconscious and low level that there was, you know, some... Uh, discontent, uh, etc., against uh, the U.S. in particular, um, but NATO. You know, why are you doing here? Get out of Vietnam. Get out of Germany. Get out of. But it wasn't really anti-U.S. forces, particularly. Um, so in my office, we had Germans. We had. Uh, my wife was third country national. Uh, it, it, it was an office environment, um, and so when the bombing happens and the second bombing happens, it raises a level of of uh, understanding. The hospital, ninety uh, seventh general, um, after the bombing, set up very quickly. You know, what happens if it happens again, getting ready for triage and cases, mass casualties, 
fortunately, that did not happen. Um, and uh, especially after the, the Heidelberg uh, follow-on bombings, um, it, but uh, you know, so they began to take precautions, but nothing like uh, you see today, where you've got metal detectors, you've got after Timothy McVeigh, and the the the, the, the our own bombings here. Uh, it, it, that's another level beyond where society was at that point. Yeah. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was in a way a much more, much more innocent time in a sense. It sounds yeah, like that. Yeah, it was. Um, do you you mentioned you had uh, photographs of the this uh, of this stuff that was shared to you by your friend? Do you still have those photographs? I do. Is that something you would uh, consider scanning and sending along to me? I also, by the way, have photographs not of the Terrace Club, but photos taken immediately after the. Um, the uh, the main building, which are pretty harrowing looking, uh, of just the damage. I'd be happy to send your way as well if you were um, if you were able, if you were interested as well. But I would love to see those. I've seen very few actual photos of um, the damage to get an appreciation of, it, and I would love to see copies of that if you were willing to send them to me. Sure, I could do that. Okay, uh, I've got to locate them first and then, okay. and then scan them. Well, I I appreciate all of your time telling me about your tale and my gosh, I mean it's it, I um you've been extremely helpful in helping me understand exactly what went on in that day. You just really have helped me immensely. I greatly greatly appreciate it. Sure. So, thank um, you for now, your time and oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. On your website, um you talk about someone who had been in the dining room who got some glass and and bled to death? I didn't, I didn't know of that. You know what? I have it completely wrong, and I haven't updated it. Um, a lot of my website, a lot of the stuff I wrote there originally was based on. Literally, I wrote it ten years ago, based on some of the initial stuff was completely mm-hmm. wrong, and I haven't updated those portions yet, which is dumb because I've talked to about. You know, I've talked to probably about five or six witnesses to your particular event. I just haven't updated it. That was that was actually in reference to um, Bloomquist because the original reports was that he was hit with glass, but in fact he was hit with a piece of shrapnel, and and so I need to update that. So I have yeah. it wrong, and I and I and I just need to update it. In fact, I will do that in the next couple of days because I forgot about it. My understanding is the steel caught him in the skull. You know that uh, I I talked to another gentleman who actually saw him personally, and mm. and he said that it, it you're you're right hit him on the side and it hit his skull and also just like above his shoulder and just kind of tore out a big region. It sounds awful the way he described it, but there was obviously no hope. It was um, I, just, just major damage. They threw, they threw him in an automobile and got him as fast as they could to 97 General. And he died in the parking lot. They were just absolutely unable to uh, do anything for him. Wow. What a nightmare. Well, again, thank you so much for your time. And, uh, and I'll send you a quick uh, link thanking you for this. And I'll, and I'll send you copies of those photos that I have as well you might find interesting. Okay. Cool. Thank you very much. I really appreciate your time. You're most welcome. Thanks so much. Bottom line, 